0: Welcome to the Impact Nation's podcast, episode 23, How Can You Go Back? What was the most exclusive claim in all of Scripture? Can you have eternal life if you've never heard of Jesus? And what did Jesus mean when he said we would do greater works than him? Steve gives us his thoughts on these questions and more in the study of John chapter 14.
1: We introduced it last week, but we're getting into the meat of what's called the Farewell Discourse. This is when Jesus is with now the 11 because Judas has left just just moments before we start here. And they're in the upper room. And this is his last night and Jesus knows uh, what's coming. The disciples do not. And he's just pouring out uh, his heart. So this is, um, I believe, this 14 to 17, are really at the heart of John's Gospel. And John reveals a deep spirituality that is a path to one of his things, which is abundant life or eternal life. (coughs) Which, by the way, he uses the word eternal life uh, almost in a parallel to the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And uh, John's Gospel is about receiving the love of the Father and living out of that source. John's Gospel is so experiential, and it reflects the experiential love of God. Last week, I, I um, quoted Raymond Brown, a, a commentator-theologian I like very much, who, who says that these chapters come to us as if they were coming from heaven, that Jesus was physically in the room, but he was revealing a truth right from heaven. Um, so, this Farewell Discourse, which is again 14, 15, 16, some would include the Priestly Prayer of 17, <coughs> this Farewell Discourse is a journey toward oneness with God. Oneness is so thematic in, uh, in these chapters. At the heart of this passage is the central truth of John's Gospel. And that goes all the way back to the, the uh, prologue. The central to- truth is he is declaring, Jesus and the Father are one. You'll recall that a couple of months ago, we spent a little bit of time, a fair bit of time, talking about the Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, here's the setting. They're alone in the upper room. That's the final time they're going to be together before Jesus' arrest and He goes to the cross. So, everything He's saying is incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, It's a time of great intimacy, uh, but for them, it's also a time of real confusion and a sense of sadness. They can feel the heaviness, uh, but they're sure not very clear about all that's going on. (coughs) Just before chapter 14 opens, what's happened with the same guys at the same time in the same room is that Jesus has told them he's leaving and they can't come with him. And that's just a shock, and that's incredibly sad. And he's turned and said to Peter that he's about to deny Jesus later that very night. So now we're entering into the, the heart of this farewell discourse, and that's the setting. That's what's going on for them. Let me read the first four verses of John 14. And uh, you'll find this interesting because you've probably, in this room, got several different translations, and you'll find some differences because the Greek is difficult to translate right here. But we'll go with this one. I'm, I'm using the Christian Standard Bible. Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way where I am going. Let's just pray. Lord, I feel over these next sessions that we're on holy ground and I ask for revelation. I ask, Lord, even as I speak, that you'll give fresh revelation to every one of us. And the Holy Spirit, we invite your work amongst us tonight. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, is Kelly around? Somebody can tell her that I don't mind at all hunters making some noise. I've got 13 grandchildren.
0: <laughs>
1: Verse 1 Your heart must not be troubled. These, these words point to what has just taken place. But also, there's a deeper level, as always with John. Uh, it points also to what Jesus uh, knows is about to begin in just a few hours. He knows his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his death. <coughs> and he knows that this is going to cause these eleven disciples great extreme distress, actually. But here's the deeper significance of what he's saying. It's deeper than they realize. Their distress will not just be human sadness and confusion. Jesus is identifying that what they're about to face is part of a cosmic struggle, an invisible but cosmic struggle uh, between him and the powers of darkness. He's saying. And uh, I think it's really important for us to study and read what's called the Passion, this whole section right through um, his crucifixion. It's important to read it understanding there is this invisible cosmic battle right now that is just, it has gone up and up and up. John introduced it to us in the prologue, um, but it is now at almost a fever pitch. And um, so we need to realize that, and I think that's what he's saying. Don't let your heart be troubled. Yes, there's a natural distress. Jesus says you're not coming with me, but he's also saying you're heading into incredible spiritual battle. And I'm sure we all know times when we don't know why, but suddenly we're we're just fighting fear, or or we're fighting depression. We're we, what is this? It's this invisible cosmic battle and that's what he's talking to them about And then he says, believe in God, believe also in me now I'll bet among us we've got different translations because it's <coughs> the Greek here is very difficult and, and commentators don't agree on it but some of you if anybody's got a new King James here will, will say you believe in God what's called indicative that's my old days as an English teacher uh, it indicates something you believe in God. But it can also be translated. Do you believe in God? Probably the best is indicative, followed by imperative. Let me unwrap that for those of us who don't remember our high school English. Indicative says it just indicates you believe in God, but the imperative says, believe in me. Okay? So he's he's that imperative is coming through. By the way, John's gospel. He uses the word believe 100 times. So, how many times have we talked about how he doesn't waste a word and he builds things so carefully? Um, This gospel continually calls us into a relationship that is grounded upon believing. Uh, John also wrote, 1 John, 1 John 5, 4 says, This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. So he's saying, this is how we're going to conquer. This is how you're conquering that cosmic battle. It is through your faith. And he says, their faith is going to conquer the world because their faith will unite them with Christ, with Jesus. And the theme you're going to hear again and again tonight is union, unity, oneness. And it develops even stronger uh, in the next section in 14, which we'll do another time. So... Faith in Jesus is faith in the Father. We need to understand that. We talked a while ago on the Trinity. I said that we, we tended to, to fragment the triune God almost almost polytheistically. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, there are three persons but in one in perfect unity. And uh, that's such a strong theme in John's Gospel. So I'll say it again. Faith in Jesus is faith in the Father, and he's going to develop that. Mm -hmm. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going away to prepare a place for you. There are so many levels of understanding of this verse. I'm going to just give you some. What's going to happen tonight, because some of these verses have got so many different opinions, I'm not going to give you every single one, but I'm going to let you know there's a range here. And this is one of them. So I'm going to repeat that. In my father's house, (coughs) excuse me, are many dwelling places. If you're an old King James person, are many mansions. Some of your translations say are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. So, number one opinion on this is the only other time Jesus used this expression of uh, my father's house is in chapter 2. Remember when he goes into the temple and he's driving them out. Um, and so the connection, and N.T. writes very strong in this, he, he's real strong in this temple uh, connection, that like the temple, which is the intersection for Jews of heaven and earth, Um, Jesus is saying I'm the intersection point I'm where heaven meets earth a second one is dwelling places uh, most literally in in the uh, Greek means a personal place and (coughs) and I think another meaning is he says I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you that is in other words a a meeting place (coughs) for you and me and it's personal. It's got it's got, as it were, your name on the door, end mm-hmm. and your uh, your dwelling place is 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 for you. It's designed for you, and it's not the same as Dawn's mm-hmm. because because the Lord knows how to connect most deeply in Dawn's way, and it's not the same as your way. So it's a a word about great intimacy, and the reason gets he's going to do this is because by going um, he's going to send the Holy Spirit and we'll talk a lot about that on the next session so the dwelling place is the father and the son in us it's that meeting place so I want you to think of it that way he says I'm going to prepare a dwelling place but there's a sense we turn it and in lots of theologians think he means he is the dwelling place Everybody, follow me. Yeah. Okay. The third thing, very common. He means heaven, and he says there's many rooms, and in other words, he's saying don't worry, there's there's a room for all. Okay, there's no limit to this. <coughs> Fourthly, pardon me. Fourthly, some believe that Jesus is telling them he will come for them at the hour of their death, and take them to heaven. I don't hear that as much now, but that is very much a traditional theological view of this verse. And uh, and there's some reason for that, because 2 Corinthians 5.1, 2 Corinthians five one Paul says this, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, that yes. is eternal in the heavens. So there is a reason for that more traditional view. <clears throat> Number five, you see how many possibilities from one phrase? Number five, Jesus is referring to a special house, i.e. a unique union that he has with the Father that is reserved just for the Son and all who are the Father's children through faith in the Son. We're, we're connecting back to John 1.12. All who he gives the right to be called children of God. And he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. Later in the chapter, Jesus is going to develop that the reason he is going away is so that the Holy Spirit can come. He later says, if I don't go, then the comforter, the helper, the advocate, the counselor, all these wonderful words from the Holy Spirit can't come. Um, So let's move on. Verse 3, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Everybody see that in verse 3? Jesus is on his way to be united with the Father and to make it possible for his disciples to be united (coughs) with the Father because of him. If he doesn't go to the Father, we can't be united to the Father. In his resurrection, Jesus takes... The disciples into union with himself and the Father. This is part of his victory on the cross. It's this uh, we've talked before about first uh, victory about defeating the enemy, but also the victory in the positive is all barriers are gone. And now we can be in the using his phrase, the Father's house. Um, and you know, we said earlier. Uh, we saw this last week in uh, chapter thirteen thirty three. He had told them that where he is going, they can't come. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And now he says, I'm going to come back for you. Interesting, huh? Um, and he says, uh, I'm going to receive you to myself. We're back to the theme of intimacy and union. Let me just step away from my notes for a second. Personally, in my own life, doesn't mean... My room, the room with Steve's name on the door doesn't look the same as (laughs) Anne's. But for me, delving into my union with Christ and um, the unity within the triune God has been the single most formative thing in my 42 years of walking with the Lord. These passages, I said to you in passing two weeks ago that at one point the Lord had me go through and study and meditate on these chapters for three and a half years. And uh, I just couldn't get away from it, and He took me deeper and deeper into it. And of course, if I'd gone another three and a half years, I would have gone deeper and deeper again. But I want to say that this whole issue of union and intimacy... Is, if it was an easy journey, then we'd all do it right away. It isn't an easy journey. I've told you that for me, um, just for me, uh, my morning time with the Lord usually starts with me reading uh, contemplative uh, writing for a few minutes. Just to help still me and settle me in to this whole issue of my union. My spirit union with Christ with the, with God the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit now I'll come back to what I'm doing because I, I, I don't know I just felt like I wanted to share that so this doesn't just become too clinical this is a rich rich journey 14 to 16 is so rich and probably 14 14 might be my favorite favorite chapter in John's gospel maybe. <laughs> It's in the top 21. Okay. Um, So he says, I will receive you to myself. Where I am, you will also be. Those words must have been incredible. And they must have had a very different meaning. Because it was just a little bit ago, he says, where I'm going, you can't come. And remember in John 7, we talked about this thing is 737 he says to the Pharisees he doesn't say where I'm going you can't come he says where I am you can't come remember that Yeah. so he's outside of time he's outside of space this is one of the things I find myself teaching a lot of different churches now that, that he's bigger and he's more he's he is he's more boundless than we thought so he says where I am you'll also be And I think this is very mystical. This is classic John. He was a mystic. And uh, it's about living in heaven right now. That's another theme that I have a lot when I teach. Even when I'm preaching uh, evangelistically outdoors, I talk about how Jesus brought heaven now. He lived in heaven now. He lived multidimensionally. Remember we talked in the incarnation. that, That in the incarnation there's now a man in the trinity and we said that while he was feeding the 5000 and he was healing the lame and the lepers at the same time colossians 1 tells us he was holding all the cosmos together he is so multidimensional so anyway i got to get back to teaching i kind of started to go somewhere didn't i so where i am you will also be we see john being highly mystical living in heaven now and then he says <coughs> This is an interesting thing. Um, He talks about this dwelling place. I go to prepare a dwelling place. Is the dwelling place Jesus himself? Is it just being with Jesus? I don't know. Third, Jesus is with us here, and at the same time he's with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the heavens. Again, we're outside of time and space. He is with the Father. Read it all the way through John. He's not saying, I'm going to go. He says, yes, at times he says, I'm going to go be with the Father. And at other times he says, I'm with the Father. This multi-dimensional gospel that we could study the rest of our life. And what would happen is the, the pool would get deeper and deeper. So he's with. He's he's here with us now and at the same time He's with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the heavens and this opens up a deeper meaning. There's a man in the Trinity. These words suggest to me, what He's saying suggests to me the activity of the Trinity. We've talked about this in other weeks. There's a word, for those of you guys who haven't been here for a while, there's a word, perichoresis. I love that word. And perichoresis is best defined as the divine dance, the activity in the triune Godhead, the activity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And really what happens after the, the cross and the resurrection is we are invited into that perichoresis, that activity. Um, and so <clears throat> this speaks to me absolutely of that. Oh, I better move on because I'm only three verses in. Um, verse 4 and 5 uh he says, you know where I'm going, and, and uh, you know where I'm going, and then good old Thomas, Thomas the practical pragmatist, verse 5 says, but we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus' words are a mystery to the disciples. He says, you know where I'm going, and their response is, no, we don't. <laughs> Very practical. And then we get verse 6, which is probably one of the the most famous, well-known verses in the Bible. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So first, Jesus identifies himself in three profound ways. The way, the truth, and the life. I would encourage you to meditate on those things. Meditate on them. Let them begin to minister to you and speak to you as the way, and as the truth, and as the life. So let me take this apart just a little bit. Oh, the second thing he does, by the way, first, the way to life. <coughs> and the second thing he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He makes one of the most exclusive claims in all of Scripture. Maybe the most exclusive. It is It has been a huge stumbling block. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Let's look at way, truth, and life. The way, Jesus is the means. He's the conduit. He's the channel by which the Father's life flows to man. And He is the way as as our mediator, as that conduit, as the one who connects us to the Father. But He's also the way as our pattern for life. Remember we talked about that with the foot washing? He said, I give you an example. Literally, I give you a pattern. So that's how He is. And and. Remember back in in, uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He's the way. Secondly, the truth. Jesus is the truth, just like he is wisdom. Just like He is the Word, we talked a lot about Logos, remember? And it means more than Word, it means intent, it means initiative, it means all kinds of things. But, but just like He's the Word, just like He's wisdom, He is the truth. John 18.37, he said this, I was born for this, and I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Strong words, that was in his arrest, he said that. Then number three, the life. Life comes through the truth, via the truth. Truth brings life. To believe His words means to receive eternal life. John 10.10, He came to bring abundant life. A favorite verse for me, we're going to get to, in a few sessions from now, John 17.3. Jesus in His prayer said this, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. John 6, we looked at this weeks ago. John 6, 63. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And that was just a quick run through. I'm telling you there is gold to be mined verse after verse after verse as you just ask the Lord to show you. So the second part of this way through the life, he says, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. This has become a stumbling block in our post-Christian world. Um, probably all of you have had a conversation with somebody and said, I just can't believe that Jesus is the only way. That's so elitist, that's so exclusive, that's so all these things, right? It's um, It's interesting. Among theologians, among commentators, there is a wide range of interpretation of what he means. And I'm going to give you the bookends. I'm going to give you kind of two extremes. The second one isn't the most extreme, but it's close. Okay? The first is this interpretation when he said, nobody comes to the Father except by me. If Jesus is the only way to the Father, and therefore to eternal life, then the only way to heaven is to pray to Jesus, a sinner's prayer, receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because there's no other way. If for any reason someone has never done this, and I'm talking about the extreme version, including that never never having heard of Jesus, then they are excluded from heaven and eternal life. That's that's the bookend at one end. And there's another one still within the Christian framework. I'm not going to go to universalism. I'm not, there's other terms, but I'm not within the Christian framework. Here's another one. In all cultures through history, God has revealed himself. In all cultures, at all different times, God has revealed himself, and people have heard the, the voice, the word of God. And we know the word of God Isn't the book, it's Jesus, right? Um, They did not, uh, oh, let me just say, by the way, if any of you have ever read uh, uh, Don Richardson wrote a classic book on this and talked about general revelation. He did a massive study, he was a missiologist, and, and, uh, and he would contend that God reveals himself to cultures that have never heard about Jesus. So they didn't know the name of God, but they were seeking the truth. When the Word became flesh, John 1.14, Jesus brought to fulfillment all these different paths to God. There is truth in each one of these paths. I have firmly believed that for 25 years, probably. That that there is truth. I hear truth in other paths. Truth is truth. But that means, who is the truth? Christ. So I think Christ, there's a sense in which Christ reveals himself in all these paths. Not completely, don't worry, I'm not a universalist. But um, Jesus brought to fulfillment these different paths. There's truth in each one of them, but now that truth is found in Christ. A really formative book for me, and I've read it maybe four or five times over the last <coughs> five years, is C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a terrific little story about 160 pages long. But basically, it, it reflects his view that those who were sincerely looking for the way, the truth, and the life were looking for Jesus. They just didn't know his name. How many of you uh, have ever heard of Jackie Pullinger in mm-hmm. Hong Kong? Um, I had the great privilege of having a friendship with Jackie. And I remember one time she came to our church and she said, All over the world, people are looking for Jesus. It's just that they don't know his name. And, and, you know, if you spend any time, a little bit like I do in you know, other cultures, you realize, oh, Lord, you show up in some very interesting ways. So, in this way, people truly come to the Father through recognizing Jesus. And, and Lewis would even say it, that the opportunity to recognize him doesn't even end with our last breath. But but in the next life you go, oh, you're who we're looking for, or I wasn't interested, I'm still not interested. Anyway, I'm just giving you the range of what what theologians wrestle with on no one comes to the father except by me. Alright? And I'm not gonna tell you which one is right or wrong.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by the Impact Nations Clean Water Fund. Did you know that over 844 million people lack access to clean water worldwide? How would you like to help fix that? Since 2005, Impact Nations has given the gift of clean water to over half a million people. We distribute water filters in houses, schools, and disaster relief centers. And when we do, school attendance goes up, the economy improves, and lives are saved. Contaminated water affects every part of life, and safe water changes everything. You can help. Visit impactnations.com slash cleanwater to learn how. And now, back to the podcast. Let's
1: go to verse 7 to 11. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without you knowing me, Philip, The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me, notice that, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe the works themselves. John is stressing in the clearest possible terms the complete and indivisible unity between the Father and the Son. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And I do not think most of evangelicalism presents Jesus that way. They present him as the Son, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as its... Remember we talked about this before? We use the word God... And we really mean the Father. We use the word God, and it's we see it almost like this hierarchical pantheon where God, (coughs) and then there's the Son and the Holy Spirit. And scripture does not teach that at all. Church tradition does not teach that at all. And so to know Jesus is not just to get an idea of what the Father's like. Um And I know this. I've I've taught in places where their tradition is that. That Jesus came to reveal the Father. Say, that's what He's like. He says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He says it again and again and again. And this is a huge shift for most evangelicals. And it's a profound, and it's a very historic shift. It's where the church lived for a long, long time. So... To know Jesus is to know the Father. He says, he says, Philip says, just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And he says, Philip, you have seen him. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) You have seen him. It must have been an amazing statement for the disciples to hear. And Philip clearly indicates they didn't understand. I think there is pain in this exchange. I don't think Jesus is scolding him. I think Jesus is hurting It's the last night, and he says, oh, don't you really know who I am? Jesus is sharing the deepest, most important truths on this last evening, and they do not understand. Imagine you were with your kids, and you were your last chance, maybe your deathbed, or you were off to Timbuktu and never coming back. And you share the deepest things and they just don't get it. So I hear Jesus' pain in this response. And then he says something incredible to them. He says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the full revelation (coughs) of the Father. By the way, I don't mind repeating this because John keeps repeating it. (coughs) I am in the Father and he is in me. Do you see that? I am in the Father, and He is in me. Complete indivisibility. By the way, he's going to extend this to one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, John 14, 20. I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Yeah. We're back to perichoresis, Us being yeah. invited into the activity of the Trinity. This is the heart of John's gospel. I've got it in block letters in my notes here. This is the heart of of John's whole gospel. I am the Father in one. I'm in the Father. He's in me. You've seen the Father because you've seen me. And it's not just well. I'm telling you what the Father's like. It's a whole different animal than that. (coughs) Verse 11. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. The Father is the source of the works that Jesus does. Do you see that? It's the Father who lives in me who does his works. Okay? The Father is the source, complete unity. Um, and again, he says, believe. He stresses this again. Believe. I told you a hundred times in the gospel, six times in this farewell discourse. Believe. It's a key <laughs> It's the key to everything. And then he says this really interesting thing, and he says almost the same thing, by the way, in John 10, 38. He says, if you're having trouble believing,
0: focus on the works.
1: Believe in the works, because they point to me. Let me tell you a story. I could tell different ones, but this is, this was the clearest one I ever was aware of. I was in, uh, we went, huh, we went with 75 soldiers, a total of 300 soldiers escorting us, with 75 in our group, and we went up into an area in the Philippines that had not been reached in forever because it was right in the middle of a military zone, and there were there were military rebels. And uh, we got to a village to do a mobile medical clinic, and uh, uh, it, we, it was massive crowd, and it was and there were miracles that were happening. It was wonderful. But as I often do, I slipped away from the clinic because I just feel like a fifth wheel at a clinic, really. So I just slipped away, and I got somebody to translate for me, and I started to walk to the different houses, huts, really, in this village. And uh, I said, I go to this door, and I said, is there anybody who uh, here who needs healing? Jesus will heal you. And they invited me in, and there was uh, the grandmother, Lola, and she was, she could not see, she could not hear, and she could not walk. So she had pretty strong need. I wrote about this in, in one of the books, I don't remember which one. But, um, but, but anyway, the Lord healed her completely. She could see, she could hear, she could walk. When she stood up and we, the family was laughing and crying and excited, I looked out and the door was open. I hadn't realized that, the outside door. And there were a group of teenage girls watching. And I came out, and now there was maybe 12 teenagers. So I thought, man, I've got to preach the gospel to these kids because I'm in such an isolated place. And I preached Christ, and you could see it just, it just was going nowhere. It was a lead balloon. And suddenly the Lord reminded me of this verse. And instead of presenting the gospel, I said, so how many of you know Lola? And they all looked at me like I was a dummy, right? It's a small <laughs> village, probably 2,000 people or less. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, and she blind, deaf, and can't walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and I said to the family, "Would you bring her out, please?" And she came out, and they saw her. And by then, almost instantly, twelve turned into I don't know, can't remember now, 30, 40 people. Yeah, oh. you know, all young people. And I talked about the miracle that Christ did and why He did it, and I just that just opened up the way, and every one of them came to Christ. Mm-hmm. And I got a guy to disciple him. So I just tell that story. I don't usually tell stories in these things, but it's such a clear example. And I would encourage us, just as he was encouraging them, said, "If you can't believe me, believe the miracles." Um, it's really interesting because the end of Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter sixteen, verse twenty. And they went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord was working with them and confirming the word by accompanying signs, right? And those of us from a charismatic tradition, we've heard that many, many times. You know, signs, wonders (coughs) following. Verse 12 to 14. Now we're getting into some interesting water here. He said this, I assure you. The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In this chapter, what we've already seen, the first thing he did in the first three verses, Jesus established his care for them don't be troubled, don't be afraid. And then, his identity with the Father. And now, he is commissioning them to continue his mission and his works. His mission was to proclaim abundant and eternal life by believing him. Secondly, to reveal what the Father was really like to people. You've seen me, I'm like the Father. I'm I'm one of the Father, right? And thirdly, to be God's presence in the world. He was the presence of God. If you think back to the very beginning of John's Gospel, one night we talked about um, chapter 1, verse 51, where he says to Nathanael, Hey, Nathanael, that's nothing. Stick around, you're going to see the angels of heaven ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That that latter is Jesus himself connecting the activity of heaven and earth. And so he is God's presence in the world. Alright? That's, that's his commission. And he's giving it to them. And now we come to the crux of it. What are the greater works? Because I'm going to go back. I'll read it again just so there's no missing it. I assure you. Or if some of your things say truly, truly. <clears throat> or if you've got a King James, it says verily, verily. In other words, he's underlining this. The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. Here, this verse is a place of great divide in the church among believers. And the division tends to fall between charismatics and what are called cessationists. Cessationists are those who believe that the age of miracles ended when the last apostle died. Um, This divide is so readily apparent if you start to read commentaries, you start to read systematic theologies, you go on on Google and and you look up the verse and you read articles. You can tell in the first two sentences if they're a cessationist or if they're a charismatic. So how do we proceed from here tonight? Well, let me say this first. Something that we we often forget. Maybe we've never been taught. John said in chapter 3, verse 34, that Jesus had the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, without <laughs> measure. Without measure. But Paul says to the Ephesians, in 4.7, uh, that each of us was given... A measure a grace according to the measure of Christ's gift we all have a different measure but Jesus had the spirit without measure and that's what the scripture teaches that very truth may help us come to terms with some of this this issue this great divide <coughs> so here's some of the opinions and we couldn't I could have spent the next hour on all the different Theological opinions. But come down to a few of them. When he says he'll do greater works, Jesus means that there will believer there'll be believers with extraordinary faith. Super faith. Uh, Mark eleven, twenty three Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and do not <clears throat> in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So one theory, one belief of this verse is that there's some people with extraordinary, extraordinary faith. Now, I clearly believe there are different measures of faith with what I do traveling the world with different people. um, I see different levels of faith. And though I used to work really hard to say, no, 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 there's no difference in the anointing, it's just our faith, we're all called to the same thing, and I used to teach that and teach that, but unfortunately, I can't teach it with conviction anymore because the reality is some folks just have more anointing than others. That doesn't mean at any given moment God can use anybody. Okay? So, moving on. You shall do greater things than these. Greater means, another theory, more numerous. This is particularly popular among the cessationists, but it's not something to throw out. He's saying, he's referring to the whole work of the church. He's referring to the apostolic activity that's going to happen. He's talking about quantity, not quality. And uh, and this is prevalent among conservative evangelicals. Related to that is a very common assumption that the greater works (coughs) refer to the proclamation of the gospel. And the example is... The day of Pentecost, Peter gets up, preaches, 3,000 come to Christ. We have no indication that Jesus ever saw that kind of result. But it's because he went, he says, if I go, then there's a helper who will come. Right? So after the resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit comes, and so there's greater works. And it's still increasing in our day. I, I, I spent time with a man in India, and I know him well, And for three years in a row, on Pentecost Sunday, they baptized one million people. One million. So the increase hasn't stopped if we're saying greater works are numeric. Okay? Um, He says, and it's because I go to the Father. The Holy Spirit has come and changed and increased what we can see. Now it seems like part of my role in the larger church I'm going to be doing it again this weekend is to expand people's expectations to increase people's expectations some of you have traveled with me and you know I spend some time on that first day or two trying to increase what you expect to see because I'm convinced that one of the most fundamental keys to seeing healings and miracles is expectation so that's that's a big part of my journey and has been for a lot of years. But, I want you to know, I live somewhere between these two positions. That Because one of them, I don't think I actually wrote down the one, which is, greater works mean uh, more spectacular. I didn't write that down, did I? Oh, I missed the obvious one. That uh, a common charismatic view, and I do not mismerge any of these views. There's good reason for all of them, okay? But a common charismatic view is he he meant greater in quality, greater than feeding five thousand or walking on the water or raising Lazarus, okay? <coughs> I live somewhere between the two that it's that it's it's numeric and it's and let me try to explain why. I have had times, and maybe some of <clears throat> you have, where I have seen not just scores, but hundreds of healings in, in almost moments, maybe maybe two minutes. I've watched a watched hundred people with uh, cataracts, a hundred people, all their, their eyes open. I had a night when there was a torrential storm in Haiti, and we, I, I was never in any harder rain. And we saw 1,000 people healed. The roar that went up. You could hear it over the roar of the rain. Mm -hmm. I have had, I could go on and on. But I also have had dear friends who were full of faith. And I was full of faith. And I prayed for them and they died. A man, a prophetic guy, a prophet really. We ministered together and loved David. And uh, he got cancer, and we prayed for him, and prayed for him, and prayed for him, and prayed for him, and he died. So, I can't walk into a hospital and clear it out. Although, a few times I've gone into hospitals, and I've I've laid hands on people, and they've been healed. Blind eyes opened. I think there was a child. I think was dead. I can't say for sure, but I think was. uh, I've seen amazing things, but I've never walked in and said, well... I'm here. Greater, greater things. Now we're going to clear out the whole hospital. It, it doesn't happen. Uh, for one thing, I don't think I don't think the Lord could trust me with that. You know, I, I don't think I'd trust me any further than I could throw me. Um, because always we come back to oneness. We come back to dependency. We come back to being in Christ. But on the other hand, I I absolutely rejected long ago that well those things were for another time or if it be thy will so I don't live in either place Um, and I'll tell you this we are called we are called I'm going to look right into the camera we are called as, as the people of Christ to live in and with the tension of the already and the not yet that the kingdom has come And is advancing. But it has not fully come. And it will not be fully here until Christ returns. But it has come. It broke in. And when we fall to either side. That we're called to the greater works. And if you just have enough faith everybody's healed. Or that ended with the death of the last apostle. Either of those breaks the tension that we're called to live in the tension of living between the already and the not yet. Because at the cross, he defeated the power of the enemy. And all the possibilities changed. But not all the certainties. Every person I know, starting with me, who's pursued the miraculous healing works of the kingdom of God, doing what Jesus did. Every person I know has faced and faces times of crisis and failure. The same week that I watched hundreds of Muslims miraculously healed, the same week my father died, for whom I've been praying for a long, long time. It's the tension of the already and the not yet. So, this I'm speaking about, not so theologically, but more experientially. But the thing is, once you begin to see the greater works, however we define that, once you begin to see the kingdom break in, how can you go back? How can you go back? Last month we had five people who were born Stone deaf. Not who lost their hearing as they got older. They were born deaf. Never heard a sound. We had five of them. Instantly, their ears opened completely. How can you go back? I once, we had five blind people in Zambia. Four of them, the Lord opened their eyes completely. The fifth one, I still remember his name was John. And he was a strong believer. Oh, I'm about to see. And he didn't. God is a mystery, as I've told you many times. Let's move on. Everybody still with me for a couple more minutes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Verse 13 and 14. <coughs> Fourteen. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Which is paralleled in, in Mark eleven twenty four. 24. I gave you 23 a minute ago. When Jesus tells them and tells us to pray in his name, it is not a formula. I'm telling you right now, there is no power in a formula. Somebody phoned me the other day and said, Steve, I've heard you teach before. I'm dealing with someone with cancer. How do you pray for people with cancer? I said, well, I'll give you some guidelines, but I can't give you, this is the way to do it. Because it's never the same, but here's some things to consider. Formulas make me really nervous. Um, So when he says pray in his name, he's not saying use a formula, there's no power. He is saying it in the growing context through chapter 14, 15, 16, pardon me, the growing context of deep relationship with him. Here's what happens. Deep relationship with Jesus draws us into his life, his love, his purpose, and I would add, his way of seeing things. Mm -hmm. If I still see the world around me in the same way, then I don't think he's drawn me in. I haven't come in yet. One of the things I say all the time, Jesus, as you know, those of you who had to listen to me over the years, you know he's passionate about the poor. There's over 2,000 verses about justice. He's passionate about the poor. He's passionate about the alien. He's passionate about the hungry, the widow, the orphan. If I get close to Him and my heart is not touched by those situations, how can that be? How can that be? When we really get close in deep relationship, He draws us into His life and His love, and His purposes. So, I want to finish simply like this. I notice I've stayed pretty open-ended on the greater works and whatever you ask, because I don't think it's going to help if I just give you all the theories, because I think that's all they are. There's great mystery in verses 12, 13, and 14. And I think what I would say to us, I would invite us all into a willingness to enter into these three verses experientially. If you start to enter into them, the greater works, asking whatever you ask, I promise you perplexity and pain. <laughs> Hallelujah. But I also promise you moments of joy and sheer astonishment. I watched a, the, most, the most twisted body I've ever seen in my life completely untwist in front of me, completely astonished. Oh, I'm not going to suddenly realize I could start going for all kinds of stories joy and astonishment. And I also, as I told you, I've prayed and people have died. I've prayed and they didn't hear. I've prayed and they didn't get better. Paul, we see him in the end of Acts. You know, the viper grabs his hand shakes it off. But we also have Paul who talks about some of his disciples who are sick. Some of them he had to leave behind sick. He says to Timothy, listen, take a little wine for your stomach. Maybe that'll help. The already and the not yet. Do you think because he had to leave some sick people behind, he said, I'm not praying for the sick anymore? It's the tension of the already and the not yet. So that's 12, 13, 14. To back up. The greater context of those three verses is the previous 11 verses, and beyond that, is the indivisible unity of Father and Son. And I would encourage you, take a little time, and think about, just think about verse 20. Where he extends this, this paracoresis this, this inviting us into the activity of the Trinity. Because he says, in this incredibly intimate time with them, his last time, he says, I'm in the Father. And then he draws them in. And I'm in you.
0: And you're in me. That's a wrap on another episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Don't forget to send your questions to podcast at impactnations.com and be sure to check out impactnations.com slash clean water to learn how you can help rescue lives. Thanks. Have a great week.